This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Here we are on episode four of the politics of everything. Today, I'm going to unpack the politics of branding with the help of a businesswoman who knows all about that. Debbie O'Connor is the founder of White River Design and a water graphic design practice based in Western Sydney. She's a brand strategist, but I know her as a truly creative soul who's driven and inspiring in equal measure. She designed our latest podcast logo, so I must be happy with her work. Her other project is an amazing co-working space called The Creative Fringe, a former industrial site that I can say firsthand is a colourful, beautifully created workspace that showcases what Debbie's vision and deep understanding of branding can mean even in bricks and mortar. Welcome to the program, Debbie. Thanks for having me, Amber. Well, let's let's start off with, I guess, what I know you for best. You often say that successful branding is far more than just a logo. What do you mean by that? I mean, in my experience, surely logos are what many companies swear by and customers can easily recognize, whether that be in a graphic form or in a typeface. Why is branding more than that? I'm so glad you asked this question because it's one of the biggest biggest myths of branding. Most people think that your logo is your brand, but the reality is that your logo is simply a symbol by which people can recognize your brand. So what I mean by this is apples don't sell computers. It's actually the brand behind Apple, what Apple stands for, their promise to their customers. It's what they're always striving to achieve that creates the brand for Apple. So they're always innovative, forward thinking, doing things differently. So that's what people buy into. They actually don't buy into the logo. And that's where the difference comes between what branding is and having your logo. But surely a logo is important in terms of brand recognition. I mean, where does that sit for you? Yeah, look, and abs- you know what? I, that's I'm in the business of creating logos. So I definitely don't want to tell people it's not important. It is really important. But to be able to understand how to create your logo as a designer, we need to know so much more than simply, well, what's your favorite color? What we want to look at is say, well, what does your brand stand for? What is what is it that you're striving to achieve? Um, do you have a particular promise to your customers? Um, do you have something that you are doing that is completely different to somebody else? Um, what is the personality of the brand? And we're going to go into that a little bit further because once you know the personality of the brand uh, from a designer's perspective, we can then design towards a personality. And that's when the logo comes in, the colors come in, the fonts. Um, If we don't know what the personality is, we can simply create a a pretty logo, but there's no uh, backbone to the brand. I totally agree with that. I mean, I've seen so many brands that, uh, you know, I guess it's it's a bit of a brand promise as well, what's behind the logo and the thinking, but you have to have an emotional connection. And I guess as a brand strategist with a graphic design background, how do you actually help your clients achieve that kind of initial brand from the ground up? What's the process? 
So what we do is, you know, it's, it's a lot more than just simply going, okay, I want a logo. We sit down with our clients and we talk about blue sky thinking. What is the big picture, the ultimate goal that they're wanting to achieve? It's all about how are they going to connect their product or their service to their customers so that their customer absolutely loves what they do. They go back time and time again. They refer people to to the business um, and they become raving fans on behalf of the business. I mean, I'm going back to Apple because they do it so well where they, they launch a new phone and people will actually camp out um, the night before to be able to be one of the first to get the products. Crazy if you ask me, but I know there are people that definitely are definitely are groupies of, of, of a, a product such as what Apple produces, and I think it has a lot to do with the brand. It I does. mean, in terms of you know businesses who maybe have been around for a while or have gone through some issues and want to radically rebrand, what sort of different thinking does that require? I mean, do you have to have some sort of legacy in that branding so people still know it's you? I mean, what what do you suggest there? Yeah, look, and there are a lot of brands that do go through the rebranding process. It's not easy. One of the first things that you would look at is why do you actually want to rebrand? You know, what's not working? Maybe the message that you're sending is not uh, where you are today as you were when you first started your business. Maybe things have changed so much that you actually need to pivot and reposition your business. Um, And this is where a rebrand would be able to come in and say, right, with the new direction, where are we looking? Um, Optus has done a rebrand and, you know, they used to use all the imagery of animals and these talking animals. Yes, for many years, actually. That was a long-term campaign they used. For a very long time. And now they've completely changed it. They now have their little personality, Ollie, and they're really pushing the whole yes you know, that Optus is the yes brand. Um, so they've really refocused their positioning and um, and in doing that brought them back up to um, sort of a mainstream competitive telco status, whereas before they were falling quite far behind. And I guess on that, I mean, how important is it to look at your competitors in the space when you are doing, say, a rebrand? It, it is something that you do need to take into account. Now, the reason why, um, you know, some brands work better than others is because they've been able to focus more on their personality, on um, what they're offering the client, how they can consistently give the client a brand experience that they love and buy into. And so if your competitor is doing that better than you, you need to look at what they're doing. But at the same time, you don't want to be like them. You want to have your own personality. And when we're talking about the personality of of a business, a lot of people get very confused by that because, you know, you're putting human characteristics onto a business or onto a product. And people find that uh, when you're running a business, that's a very difficult thing to do. But once you do it, so much clarity comes with that because you then know how to talk, uh, what language to use, how to interact with people. Um, And it just makes everything so much clearer and easier to do. 
Um, and so when you're looking at what your competitor's doing, if your competitor is, um, you know, of a brand personality, say the sage, which is your thinker, philosopher, expert teacher, um, it's going to have a lot more of a serious way of de- doing things. So you might go, well, you know what? That's not how we do things. We're a lot more lighthearted and we don't take ourselves as seriously. So you would then earn more on the side of being the entertainer. And so your language, your tone, your colors, everything you do would then match your personality. That's truly interesting and and a different way maybe of thinking about the branding process. And I guess for you, having worked overseas and you've been living here for 17 years or so now in Australia, how do you think we rate when it comes to creating a fair share of sort of memorable, iconic brands? I mean, you mentioned Apple, they're obviously an overseas company with a global presence. But in terms of, you know, things like trust and reliability and all those iconic feelings which we have, I mean, I always think of a brand like our national carrier, Qantas, which despite many changes, and to be honest, they operate a lot of their um, processes overseas these days, we still see it as an Australian icon and sort of things like Vegemite. I remember a few years ago when they talked about craft taking that production overseas, there was a real sense of loss. And I think it's interesting to, to think we can probably name a handful of those brands in Australia, but how do we rate in terms of creating that? Look, I think that Australia does have a very strong brand presence with a lot of their exports. Um, you know, I I always knew about Uck Boots. Um, before I came to Australia. It was a brand that had infiltrated the international market, but very Australian. Uh, Kylie Minogue is a fantastic brand export. Hugh Jackman. Um, If you think about it, I lived in London for a while and there were Australians all around me. And Honestly, if they got Tim Tams, if they could get their hands on Tim Tams, I discovered Tim Tams in London because of Australians. Um, so there are a lot of brands that Australia does have, neighbours. I mean, it's huge internationally. So we, we've got a lot of brands that are Australian that have been able to infiltrate into the international market. But what they all do is they have this sense of nostalgia. Um, they make Australians really yearn for home and there's a sense of pride that comes through with it as well. So when you look at Qantas, they are excellent at creating that feeling of, you know, Qantas brings you home. Um, you still call Australia home. They did that iconic choir singing all over Australia um, in, in one of their adverts. And so it has this sense of nostalgia that makes people feel that this is, and Qantas is great because they um, the one carrier that have never had uh, a major crash. Yes, exactly. They're known for that sort of reliability as well. And I suppose what's interesting with, with the whole Qantas example is, as I said, a lot of us feel very nostalgic, but I always find it ironic when, you know, you've got a choice of carriers. It doesn't mean you fly with them because it often comes down to price. So I think there's often a discord perhaps between how we feel about a brand and whether we're actually going to vote with our wallets or not. And look, that is always the case with a brand. There's some people that will buy into it entirely wholeheartedly. And brands can do things to help, you know, generate that kind of loyalty. So with Qantas, you know, you have your Qantas club and your Qantas lounge and your Qantas frequent flyers. You know, they put elements in place that people feel that they can become part of a community. There are a lot of brands that do that type of thing and they do it exceptionally well so that 
it makes it harder for competitors to come into their market and to steal their clients. But yes, there will always be a price point factor. Some people will um, put safety uh, above a price. So they'll go, well, I'll only fly with Qantas because their safety record is 100% clean. Whereas others will say, look, I'm prepared to take the risk and um, I'll go with a, a cheaper a cheaper flight option. So that is the same with every single brand. But what you're wanting to do when you're creating your brand is to have as much of a buy-in and a loyalty following uh, from your customers as you can possibly have, because it is a great way of keeping your competitors at bay. No, it's absolutely true. And I think you've really explained that in a way which makes sense to all of us, even if we're not in that branding world. I'm curious to sort of um, transition a bit into the idea of, you know, the rise of digital marketing. It seems to be where lots of brands can gain, I guess, new followers and, and, and create emotions even online. I mean, what are some of the key steps you think that brands need to take to get us as excited online as we might if we went into a bricks and mortar store or had an experience face to face like we would have many years ago because there was no online world? Yeah. And look, it's, it's something that is very prevalent in the world that we live in. Uh, the internet is not going away. It is a massive beast. And if you're running a business, you need to embrace it. Uh, the reality is if you are not on Google in the eye of the consumer, you do not exist. So this um, thinking that, you know, this is a phase that's going to pass is long gone. And we really do need to have a digital strategy for our businesses, whether you're serviced or product based. Now, with the rise of social media, there are a huge amount of opportunities to be able to engage your customers on a level that is very different to simply walking into a store and making a transaction. Um, you know, you have the opportunity through video these days, uh, like podcasts, anything where you can connect educate, entertain customers. It's the type of thing that businesses should really be having a really strong plan around it and figuring out how they're going to do that. Because uh, when it comes to branding, consistency is king. And if you've got a plan and you know how you're going to roll that out um, throughout your social media, you can't have one thing happening on one social media platform, something completely happening on another where the language and tone all changes. So consistency is definitely the way to go. And having that plan to make sure that that engagement is happening on all the levels in the end, people are still going to want to go into stores, but a lot of the pre-shopping is done online. And with online shopping so prevalent um, and being able to, you know, get your products next day delivery, it does mean that it becomes a highly competitive um, competitive area. Now, there is a website. It's called Shoes of Prey. And for any woman who loves shoes, it's, it's the place to be. That's oh, for sure. Isn't it amazing? So you can go onto this website and you can design your own shoe. Um, you can have a, a high heel, a flat. You can pick the size of the heel, whether it's going to be a wedge or a stiletto. You can pick what shape toe it's going to be, um, what finish, what color. Is it going to be snakeskin or satin or, you know, do you want diamante on there? You can literally design any shoe that you want. And so the experience they've been able to create online for their brand is exceptional. Um, not only do they have a premium product, they're not selling cheap shoes. 
But the whole experience of being able to design and then purchase your shoe becomes, that's why people go there, is to have the entire experience. It is. It's an individual sort of experience too, I suppose, where it's being customized. And, you know, you've even seen with certain, you know, brands now, it's all about monogramming. I I don't think there's a store, a women's store particularly that you could go into with accessories like handbags or, you know, luggage tags where you can put your initials on it. And, you know, we always always want that little bit of point of difference, even if we're buying something that's, you know, available widely. And look, customization is a very big thing when it comes to branding these days. Um, a couple of years ago, I was in New York and there's an M&M store, prime position um, in Times Square. And I thought, M&M's, this is crazy. You know, we can get M&M's down in a Woolworths store. You know, we can go in and buy a packet any day of the week. And here they have prime property slap bang on Times Square. So I went in to have a look. And honestly, you can buy M&M everything, pajamas, slippers, pens, caps. But there's one section in the store that you can go into and you can custom your M&Ms. Wow. Your own like initials and names or whatever it might be. I could put my children's names onto an M&M. And the whole experience that I went through with, you know, choosing the color M&Ms that I wanted and pushing this big red pulsating button that was on the wall that allowed this whole system to then work was incredible. I walked out of that store thinking I'd had the best experience in New York and it was through M&Ms, but it was that opportunity to customize it to be able to choose what I wanted to do. And so I was totally enthralled with the brand. And, you know, my kids absolutely loved their gift. So it's taking it to the next level saying, well, how can you engage your customers and create a brand experience that that has a memory for them? Absolutely. And I think Coca-Cola did something similar a few years ago with individual cans of Coke with your name on them. You could go into pop-up stores and uh, in in shopping complexes and actually get your name on a can of Coke, which I think, you know, for, for a brand which is already iconic is that next level really. Absolutely. Personal branding is something which is a little bit of a buzzword, so not necessarily big brands customizing products for you, but the idea that you are a brand. I mean, how do you actually dig deep to create an individual's brand in what is really a crowded market. I mean, there's millions of us out there. Yeah, look, individual brands are becoming so much more prevalent. People are creating brands for themselves, which we then call a personal brand. It is, you do have to dig deep. You have to put yourself on show. You have to be prepared to step into the spotlight each and every time you go out of your your house. That's interesting. So, I mean, I guess when you're working with individuals and and they might have come from, you know, they might have had a business or they might actually be starting up their own, I guess, individual brand identity, is it for them, it won't be about logos and so forth, it'll be about everything, I imagine, from how they speak, what they say, how they present their ideas, what they wear even. I mean, we're sort of a visual world, so all those elements must come into play. Yeah, it absolutely does. Everything you do, say, how you dress, how you communicate with people, how you respond to your emails, um, if you're going to stand up and stage, how you address people, your tone, your language, everything is now on show. And so as if you're going to be having yourself as a personal brand, you need to let go of a lot of things. You have to let go of the imposter syndrome. You have to be able to really toot your own horn and be comfortable in that space. 
And a lot of people, especially women, women find this quite hard to do, is to be able to, you know, talk very positively about themselves, put themselves out into the spotlight because, you know, as many followers as we might have, we have just as many haters. And as a personal brand, you have to be prepared for both of those. You know, in Australia, we have the challenge of tall poppy syndrome. And so if you become what people think is too big for your boots, what they want to do is knock you down to, to shape. And so you have to be prepared to actually rise above that, keep growing, become an even taller poppy. Because once you then hit the high life and you are then you know, up in the sky, people will then switch and then start to look up to you. Um, and so it is a process in Australia. It is quite challenging, but there is there is a lot to be said about having a personal brand, especially if you're going to go into that thought leadership space. The challenge that you have is you cannot ever sell your business because you are the business. Well, that's right. There's not really the same exit strategy you might have if you, if you say, for example, you owned a chain of retail stores or you had an agency where there's some, you know, it's not just about you, it's about the clients and so forth. Yes, exactly. And look, there are steps that you can take. Um, you know, a lot of people that have personal brands might do video recordings that they can then sell. They might have CDs that people can purchase. They might write books that have a lot of longevity. So there are ways to kind of keep the brand going. But after a while, um, you know, once you stop working and putting yourself in the spotlight, that will eventually dry up. Of course. Well, I guess then they can go on to something more exciting if That's you choose exactly to. Right. So back to you and your journey, what, why and how did you start White River Design and what lessons have you learned in the past 14 or so years of being in this business? Look, I actually started the business um, by default. I was working for a company in the city and I was five months pregnant and they got new owners. And the new owner sat me down and told me um, that they wouldn't be giving me maternity leave, which was completely illegal. Um, And I was very upset in the beginning. But after I thought about it for a while, I realized, you know what, I wouldn't want to work for them anyway, if that's the way they were going to treat me. So I decided I would set up, um, you know, a business and uh, keep my creative skills going while I had, I was on maternity leave, and then I would just go back to work. But as it turned out, Um, I was quite good at running a business and I found ways of solving problems, I guess. Um, In the area that I live, it's a bit of a rabbit warren. And I heard that there was a statistic that 10% of the homes in the area had a home business running out of it. Now, there were 6,000 homes. And I looked at that a lot and I thought, wow, there are potentially 600 businesses here. I don't know who they are. And so if I don't know who they are, their other customers don't know who they are. So I decided to create a directory. And um, that was the beginning of the business. I was able to get 100 people advertising in this directory. And from that, um, 25 of them became clients. Some of them are still clients of mine today. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And to make a long story short, basically, um, you know, I I produced the book. I carried on doing my design work. The next year came around and I started getting all these phone calls saying, so when's the next book coming out? So it grew and I, I did that while I was doing my design work. And after eight years, I packaged it up and sold that business. And, um, and 
most a lot of those clients were still you know regular design clients of mine so it worked out really well and um, obviously by the time my maternity leave was up well there wasn't much point in going back to work with the cost of daycare these days no and why would you it sounds like you had created something far bigger and uh, more more longevity in it yeah and something that I love doing because I was really helping small businesses find their space and uh, be able to improve their businesses by focusing on their brand. And a lot of those businesses have now become really big businesses from starting off in a back room of their house, similar to my story. That's where I started. Um, and now, you know, we're in premises and staff and it's it's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, that's definitely a success story given the fact you've been in business for so long. That brings us to the Creative Fringe, which is the Western Sydney co-working space you created from scratch and it is awarded, of course. How did that journey happen for you? Were you really wanting a new business or were you just bored? I mean, how, how on earth did you decide you were going to do this as well? Yeah, look, I, I didn't really want another business because I'd been running a lot of I, I get bored quite easily as an entrepreneur. I think that happens and you're constantly doing new things. But I knew that there was an opportunity. So having run my business from home for eight years and then going through the process of finding premises, having to sign a two to three year lease, which was just off the back of the GFC. So, you know, I wasn't sure where my business was going to even be in two to three years. So it was a very uh, huge leap of faith that I was taking. I then had to fit out the office, which nobody told me was going to cost me $30,000. And I did that all on the cheap um, with secondhand furniture and everything. So after three years of being in premises, um, we outgrew our space. And, you know, I, I come from a small uh, bush town in South Africa called White River, which is why the, the name of my business. But I grew up in a community that was very connected, um, you know, a community where people really helped each other out and they had your back. And they just love seeing people progress and do well. And so that's the culture that I've come from. And, you know, when, when you get, when you grow up and you move away from home and you discover all these exciting places around the world, you also realize that people are becoming, the more connected we are online, the more disconnected we are in life. It's totally true. We're all missing that human connection in many ways. We are. And I really, really yearned for a place where I could put my business, but I could have other people working around me who we all have a, a similar way of working, a like-minded direction. And, you know, to produce what we produce, um, we use copywriters, we use photographers, we use marketers. We um, So we do a lot of collaborative work. And I really wanted a space that would would allow for that. So that's where the creative fringe came about, where we found this dirty, old mechanic warehouse. And we decided we were going to convert it into this amazing space that would inspire people and get people motivated and connected and, and collaborating. And so now we've moved in here and there are about eight different businesses all working under the same space. Some people have 
offices within our space, other people just hire a desk. It's amazing. That's exactly what, what the future of work is. Well, not even the future of work, it's the work now, isn't it? That's how we all need to work, I think. And it, it probably sparks more creativity in many ways too. It does because once you get people connecting with each other, magic happens. People are far more connected now working uh, in a co-working space rather than working from home. And it's really encouraging them to do things that they would never have tried to do while alone uh, sitting in their little back office. So they're being far more inspiring themselves, being far more entrepreneurial and being in the space just seems to ignite that in everybody. It's, it's amazing. Well, that's well done and you're the architect of it. So even even bigger kudos to you. It would be good to have a little think about, um, you know, the future of branding and what do you think that's going to bring? And it's hard to know what's going to be in that crystal ball of the next five years. But, you know, I guess with a rise of things like artificial intelligence and virtual reality and so forth being part of a branding experience, how will customers and brands interact, do you think, differently that we, to compared to what we're doing right now? Look, I think we're going to go through a couple of different phases. So the whole um, digital space is where we are at the moment. And I think that businesses really need to, to look at that and engage with that. Uh, customers are becoming so much more discerning. They can uh, hop online and search uh, for everything before they even come to you. So they can have their brands, um, any brand, at their fingertips. But I think what's going to really make the big difference in the future is how you can create an experience that for them is memorable, that makes them feel special, that is customizable. Because I think that what's going to happen in the future is people are going to want to reconnect. I agree. It's probably going to come full circle maybe in some ways. We're going to start to want more human connection and maybe less of the uh, online experiences being the be all and end all. Yeah. And look, I think we're seeing that a lot on Facebook where you have these closed Facebook communities where people can, you know, share ideas or recipes or uh, business advice or whatever it is. You've got different groups that do different things because people do want to connect And if you can create a brand that has a customer uh, community base to it, I think that is definitely the future of where brands should be heading. Super interesting to think about that, isn't it? So I guess for you, any mentors or inspirational figures that you could share with us? You don't have to name names, but, you know, I guess what have they taught you in business and in life? Because no one gets to where they are on their own. We really do need other people. Look, we do, and I think we need a number of different people in our in our lives that can help us with things. I tend to find that my core group of friends are not the people that I go to for any business advice or inspiration because they're not in the same space as me. So I do tend to, to go towards a, a lot of women in business because they have similar challenges that I might have. Um, I look at someone like Oprah who has completely constructed a life by design. And, you know, how she's been able to do that is is phenomenal. Um, I also have a friend of mine who, when we were at university, he was in a rugby accident and um, broke his neck and is tragically a, a quadriplegic now. But he went on to get two degrees. He married the most incredible woman. They have three children and um, he runs a business. That's amazing. Wow, I'm never going to complain about my day again. Yeah, exactly. And so when I'm having a tough day, that is really my go-to place because I go, you know what? 
if if I'm having a tough day, JP's day is 10 times tougher than mine. Absolutely. Well, that's a really great reminder and I think it's important to have, I guess, like you say, different people in your life that you can draw that inspiration and motivation from. It is time to wrap up. So I'd love to sort of get you to close off by sharing a bit of your own manifesto. What's some of your tried and true steps or practical advice for listeners who might be curious about, okay, the politics are branding. What do I need to do today? How can I make this work? Maybe two or three things that you think everyone needs to take hold of. Yeah, look, I think the first thing is finding out what the personality of your brand is. Now, I don't know if I'm allowed to do a shameless plug, but I do have Go a Go for it, Debbie. <laughs> I you are in a- branding. I wouldn't expect anything less. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've got a website called brandpersonalities.com.au and I've got an online game. I've been able to create um, a word association system that people can go online and they can go through a series of questions to find out whether they, uh, whether it's a personal brand or a business brand, what their brand personality is. Now, if you don't get a result, it simply means you just don't have clarity and you're trying to be all things to all people. Uh, keep in mind, I didn't make up these personalities. These personalities were based, they are based on the psychologies and findings of Carl Jung, who was a psychologist in the 1800s. And uh, he studied hundreds and thousands of personalities and determined that there were these 12 archetypes that kept coming up. All I've done is built a system around them to say, right, by asking the right questions and thinking about things from a branding perspective, what is your personality? And once you know what that is, so many things fall into place when it comes time to actually getting your message across to your customers. So the the, the main thing I say is focus on your personality because your personality determines how you do things, not what you do. Yeah, that's excellent. I, I totally agree. I think that's a really clear way for people to think about it and maybe challenge themselves on, you know, what, how, how they've been approaching branding traditionally as well. Thank you so much for being my guest today on the politics of everything. If you have enjoyed this particular podcast, jump online. There'll be some show notes with some details on how to contact Debbie. Until next time. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.